You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Episode one, introduction. To understand how I found myself writing a book about feminism, I have to take you back to January 2018. I was, like I almost always am, (laughs) sitting on Twitter and watching tweets posted from various women's marches from all across Canada. And it was about a week before the first anniversary of the shooting at the Centre Culturel Islamique in Quebec City, the Saint-Foy Mosque. I was very involved with organizing the one-year anniversary commemorations of that. And at the time, I was like really in the middle of of planning those, the, the commemoration. It was coming up at the end of that week. And There was a generalized frustration, not just among uh, organizers here, but also all across Canada. There were people saying, we're not commemorating this enough. It was a year ago that a a gunman walked into the walls of a mosque in Canada and murdered six worshippers and left dozens of others wounded. And so while I was watching these tweets from the Canadian women's marches, it was very bizarre to me to see so many people in Canada commemorating the first year anniversary of an American event, which was, of course, the inauguration of Donald Trump. And the pictures were also confusing because you saw images of people like Marion Monsef or Patty Haidu or other women who were in Justin Trudeau's cabinet who felt that it was completely fine and acceptable for them to be in the streets protesting themselves. And so I was complaining about this, as I sometimes complain about things on Twitter. And in my complaining, someone was in touch with me. So this is where the story starts, because as I explain in the introduction of the book, I have not been the kind of feminist activist that is always in the streets when there is a threat to abortion. I haven't always been out when there is rising violence against women. It just has not been the one of the movements that I have found myself involved in, not not in the same way that I've been involved in anti-war movements or the you know right to education or anti-racism or or whatever. And so someone gets in touch with me. And he uh, is a book editor and he says, this is a really interesting thread. You are, um, you're frustrated, Nora, that people in Canada are not commemorating the loss of life at the at the mosque. And you're frustrated that Islamophobia is not seemingly driving a lot or enough people to be organizing against it. And the parallel with, between that and these women marches where... It, like it was completely absent, you know, like six men were, were were shot and killed at the mosque. And in the wake of that left six widows, six women who were widows and six women who would have to take care of uh, of more than 20 children collectively. We started talking and the results of that was that I was uh, it, all of a sudden in the in the thought process of maybe I could actually come up with a book about this. Maybe I could actually write about where the feminist movement is at in Canada and why the digital age has changed so much about feminism. 
Over the next couple of months, I w- went back and forth with this individual and I had a talk that I had to do in Markham, Ontario. And so on my way to Toronto, I rattled off an outline and the outline became Take Back the Fight. It is actually not that different from that outline that I that I came up with um, on my one hour flight from Quebec City to Toronto. Uh, I had this wonderful meeting with them. I had a very bizarre uh, weekend that included being um, sexually harassed in a way that was very bizarre. I don't know if you watch Veep, but I'll just say for folks that watch Veep, think uh, the Dave Foley character, the husband of the Finnish ambassador, uh, and uh, Selena Meyer, of course, who's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And so it was so bizarre to have this experience happen um, at the same time that I'm in Toronto to try and get this book uh, proposal accepted. Anyway, it was a very positive meeting, and it looked like it was going to happen, and this was now... April uh, 2018. Now, of course, April 2018, um, I kind of go viral uh, because of comments that I make in related to the uh, the Humboldt Broncos hockey team accident. And a couple weeks later, I hear from the publisher and they say, you know, it has nothing to do with anything that you said about Humboldt, but this is not happening. This book is not happening. It's not at least it's not at least it's not happening with us. And so that was a pretty big setback. I found myself with this proposal uh, on a subject that I had never really considered writing about. But by then I had been thinking a lot about it and doing a lot of research to try and be able to formulate what I was about to say. And it started a process of trying of going from publisher to publisher trying to get this thing accepted, partly uh, thanks to the fact that the individual who contacted me in the first place um, also changed publishers. So by the time I hit... Uh, September 2018, uh, another publisher uh, saw it. Uh, He didn't like certain elements of the proposal in my sample chapter and was like, this is not a book that's going to go anywhere. And and so there I was with, uh, you know, having worked on this now for eight months, um, hoping to be able to, to put it somewhere. It had nowhere to go. Now, while all this was happening, I also uh, had been in touch with someone at Fernwood Publishing. And in my mind, these were these were kind of separate because the proposal that I had was really tied to the work that I had done with specific people already. And when Fernwood reached out to me, it was right after the Humboldt thing. And so like tons of kudos to them for having the political courage that so many other uh, publishers and other organizations didn't have. And because that proposal was wrapped up in another process with Fernwood, I was imagining, oh, my God, I could write about anything. And so there I found myself months later, months later from the the initial call with Fernwood with this proposal that finally was untied to its original way that it came to be. And so it, maybe it was a bit written in the stars because I have to um, shout out uh, Fazila Jua, who's the editor of this book, whose imprint is all over it. I mean, so much of her insights and work on the manuscript uh, helped to make it what it, what it is today. And so when I when I talk about her during this podcast, <laughs> that's that's why because she 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 deserves a lot of credit. Um, and uh, and so it was kind of like you know. It was meant to be. It was. It was meant to be that Fernwood was the was the publisher that ended up putting this book out. As I explain in the introduction of the book and why I'm setting up this podcast by talking about these details, um, I, I felt a little bit reluctant to to dive into such a weighty issue. 
This podcast is going to explore those themes. It's going to explore the way in which I thought about some of these issues and the debates that I had. I'm going to probably talk about those debates, whether they're with other activists or whether they're with the editor of this book, Fazila. And then I hope that it gives you some insights into the process uh, that I took to, to come up with this um, to, you know, help people maybe, I don't know, do something similar, do your own kinds of projects or, I mean, at the very least, not feel bad when you get your first or your second or your third or fourth rejection. <laughs> but starting there is not how I start Take Back the Fight. In Take Back the Fight, the book starts with what it was like to have a high-risk pregnancy and find myself at the whim of a system that I had always been fighting, but it had up until that point been very theoretical. And then all of a sudden, here I was in the middle of this system, at the whim of this system. And, um, and you know, feminism is very personal in some way, well, in a lot of ways. And to be able to write a book like this that is essentially a polemic, right, is, is me trying to say what I think is right, um, me, a middle class white Anglophone in, in you know, in settler, a settler in, in colonial Canada, I, I needed to make sure that people reading this book understood who I was and where I was coming from so that one, it didn't come across as if I was telling people the way it is or should be or that other people were wrong, but just that you're able to situate who I am in reading the pages. In this episode... I'm going to talk about the content. I'm going to read a little bit from the book for the folks who have not had a chance to read it yet. I hope you'll be able to, I don't know, get into it. It's not going to be very much. <laughs> um, and then I'm also going to talk about where the themes leave us today. And you'll find that all of the episodes follow this structure. And so here we go. When you set out to write an introduction to anything, uh, there's some there's certain tenets that have to be in it. And when you're writing an introduction for a book, you have to obviously identify what you're about to talk about in every chapter. And that's a good chunk of what the introduction to Take Back the Fight is about. But I also had to anticipate all of the questions that someone might ask of why I was writing this, what's my purpose, and what's my vision – in the introduction. And so what the most important thing became was that I defined feminism in the way that I uh, in the way I was thinking about it. And so people were not necessarily reading, imagining that I was talking about a, a, a form of, of feminism that was perhaps more exclusive or more historical or whatever. And, you know, it's not my definition that I use, and I'm about to read that. But I, it was really important to, to find a really biting and clear definition of feminism that helped guide me through how I wrote about feminism in the rest of the book. And so if I would say feminism is good, you would automatically know what kind of feminism that I was talking about. Now, this is difficult because feminism today can mean anything from like selling a pink hamburger to setting a building on fire. <laughs> like it, it is such an elastic word. And when Justin Trudeau declared himself to be like the feminist in 2015, it really signaled that the word had escaped the control of feminists themselves. And not that feminists need to gatekeep what a feminist is or should be, but that that's a word that needs to be uh, debated and protected by feminist activists. And so 
as I said, it was very important for me to start by actually defining what kind of feminism I was talking about. And in doing so, I didn't come up with a definition myself. I mean, I'm, I'm not someone that would think that I could do such a, such a task as if there hasn't been uh, generations of, of wonderful feminists and feminist activists and thinkers that have, that have defined it. But I did f- come across the words of Harsha Walliam. And Harsha is an activist uh, in the West Coast of Canada. And uh, she uh, also just had a book come out, and you should definitely check it out. It's called Border and Rule. And her definition of feminism that she gave in an interview, I thought was amazing. I thought it was so complete and all-encompassing. And so I quote it in the introduction to help readers understand what kind of feminism I'm actually talking about. And so here are Harsha's words. To me, feminism is not only about issues affecting women or those that saw the gender binary in terms of violence against women or reproductive justice, but also about completely shifting our paradigms of what justice and equality means and how we embody it. In particular, our relationship to community care and the gendered division of labor that sustains it. For me, feminism's most transformative potential lies in the valuing of relational work, in care work like child care, elder care, emotional labor, in lifting up ancestral knowledge of grandmothers about land stewardship and how we manifest our responsibilities and accountabilities to each other, and in nurturing our communities and families through interdependency and resiliency. So dismantling patriarchy to me is as much about breaking down a system that privileges male and cisgendered supremacy as it is about breaking down a societal paradigm predicated on competition, domination, commodification, expendability, and isolation. Those words were published on March 13th, 2014 in an article for The Feminist Wire that was written by Aaron Durban Albrecht. The article's called An Interview with Harsha Walia, if you want to check it out. I love how all-encompassing this definition is, how uh, Harsha is able to capture the full spectrum of gendered labor, of gendered violence, and its connection to uh, land degradation and land theft and colonialism. And the way she ends it uh, saying, breaking down a societal paradigm predicated on competition, domination, commodification, expendability, and isolation. Listening to those words written now, how many years ago? Seven years ago. After what we've just experienced in the pandemic, I think is so profound. And so I do encourage everybody to check out Harsha's work if you haven't done that. But this was the most complete definition that I came across in my uh, writing. And I also you should make it clear, you know, I, I really wanted to make sure that these perspectives were going to be perspectives that were rooted in in a Canadian experience, uh, coming from activists who who are operating on this part of the planet, uh, because so often, you know, we there's obviously amazing scholarship that comes from other countries, um, but you know, we live often, especially feminism, in the shadow of feminists from the United States, and to have such clarity from someone who is is writing and thinking from the perspective of of uh, of living in Canada, um, I thought was really really important to highlight. And so, starting this book in the introduction by defining feminism like that was really, really important to me. And over the the rest of this podcast, you will hear just how that definition will be called upon uh, over and over, uh, especially as 
um, debates that appear in the book start to start to pop up. So debates like you know, content warning debates or debates about leadership and who gets to define who is a leader within the feminist movement. And and what do we lose when we're not actively seeking out new leadership or finding new people to train or to bring into the movements? Or are there even movements to bring people into? One of the early conversations that I had about this book was with uh, feminist activist Judy Rebick. Judy's work especially in a book called 10,000 Roses, was fundamental for me being able to write this book because 10,000 Roses takes interviews with uh, prominent feminists um, from five decades of feminist history in this country. And so I you know, wanted to make sure that I had many conversations with Judy about what I was thinking. And in the, the, one of the earliest conversations that I had with her, um, I had asked, you know, what happened to the feminist movement? Like why, why once the, the large pan-Canadian organization called the National Action Committee on the Status of Women Canada, which I'll be calling NAC for the rest of the podcast, so I'll probably say that <laughs> five or six more times. Why after NAC collapsed, was there nothing there to replace it? And Judy says, well, it's because a lot of feminists went into other kinds of organizing. A lot of feminists found themselves on the front lines of the environmental movement for the first time ever. Spaces were open up in movements for women, uh, women identified activists to be able to take up leadership positions. And of course, feminists were always doing work in other movements as well. And without the emphasis placed on NAC, it was perhaps easier to see feminist leadership in other realms. And so Judy asks, do we even need another organization like NAC? I think that that's a very interesting question that looms over the entirety of this book. I think that I'm convinced that there still is the need for something because there still is the need to locate discussion and debate and to have accountability and to have transparency and to also give people an opportunity to learn what participatory democracy feels like. Because, of course, if we don't have these kinds of structures on the left, you're not going to find that probably anywhere else. Um, and so that that will be something that I'll be talking quite a lot about as we go further through these episodes. It's really hard, I think, for many feminists to untie feminism from liberal democracy and liberal politics. And when I say liberal, I mean small l. So the kind of politics, uh, the kind of economics, the kind of democracy that we have that privileges property ownership and the individual above all else. And the reason why that's so important to untie from is because when we look at liberal liberalism relying on the unpaid labor of usually the 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 feminized partner or the feminized member of the family that's the only way that capitalism is able to run the way it it runs is with all this unpaid labor we can easily find ourselves trapped in arguing for a retrenchment of liberal politics while saying well, things need to change. So what I mean by that is, no, but, you know, women need to have their own rights to be able to go and work. And then all of a sudden you're just, you know, fighting for women to have access to like what ends up being feminized work. <laughs> it tends to be unsafe work or low paid work or or whatever. And so at the end of the introduction, I write this. 
The great lie that underpins liberal political rhetoric is that we are always moving in the correct direction. Things are always getting steadily better. But there are warning signs that things are not getting better. A notable rise in fascism, the aggressive entrenchment of white supremacy, and a climate and affordability crisis that threatens us all. We have to confront this lie if we are going to be able to struggle to make things better for everyone. Certainly, gender is not the most important identity that brings us together in society, but it is a critical plane on which we can orient and organize an effective location for radical politics and confront white supremacy and colonialism at the same time. As Audre Lorde told the National Women's Studies Association Conference in 1981, quote, What woman here is so enamored of her own oppression that she cannot see her heel print upon another woman's face? What woman's terms of oppression have become precious and necessary for her as a ticket into the fold of righteous, away from the cold winds of self-scrutiny? Lord called for feminists to deal with how their own privilege intersects in the oppression of others back in 1981. She concluded by reminding the audience, I am not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own, and I am not free as long as one person of color remains chained, nor is any of you. Unquote. The myriad ways in which our identities intersect and conflict with one another is complex. It's intentionally complex thanks to a colonial system that requires that we live according to a strict hierarchy where very few of us are wealthy and secure and the rest live according to the location we find ourselves in society's social stratification. But it's necessary for feminists to engage in this self-scrutiny if a movement can emerge to fight patriarchy in a way that is strategic and effective. If we are going to be able to tackle anything, whether that's ensuring that Me Too can actually deliver a systemic victory or to divest power from police forces who terrorize racialized communities, real-life movements must be organized to reach across issues and regions to give ourselves the organization and power necessary to change the system. This book explains why, and I hope, will continue a debate that women in Canada have been having for more than a century. So just how much has changed since I wrote these words? As I said at the beginning, this project started in the start of 2018, and it didn't actually get written, start to be written until uh, until 2019. It was basically 2019 that I spent writing Take Back the Fight. And <laughs> looking back, uh, wow, what... what um, bunch of change has happened between when I was, uh, you know, every day looking, toiling, bent over at my computer, trying to crank out some sort of bunch of words that made sense uh, to, to where we are today. And so you can imagine uh, if I wrote in all of 2019, I submitted the first manuscript in September 2019, and I got the edits back, I remember very, very well, on January 29th. 2020. Now, January 29th is the anniversary of the shooting at the at the mosque in Quebec City. And you'll hear me talk about that a lot because not only was it, of course, a major uh, event to impact um, the city that I live in and, of course, people in all parts of Canada. But it, for me personally, I mean, I'm, I'm very oriented around that, that date, um, partly because of the kind of organizing work that I do and also because of my proximity uh, to the issue. And so I received the edits on uh, January 29th, 2020. And of course, there was not much way of knowing, although I have another book coming out <laughs> very soon that suggests that maybe we should have known. But by, by the end of January 2020, we did not really know what was about to happen. 
And so I, I did my edits to the first manuscript from January 2020 until the end of February. And it was by the end of February, the first death announced from COVID in the United States was February 29th. I was coming home from Los Angeles and I was coming home to what would become a new world. March 2020 obviously was the the month that time stopped and it stopped in very strange ways. It stopped at different speeds for different people, depending what kind of person you are. And when you're writing a polemic on political organizing and on something as important as and as all-encompassing as feminism is or can be, you can imagine, <laughs> I was looking around going, oh, no, I just wrote a book that um, I don't know what the next couple of months, the next couple of years are going to look like. And will this stand up? And so in discussions with Fazila at Fernwood, uh, we decided that the book really could benefit from a preface. The preface allowed me to correct something that I should have I should have corrected earlier in the book, which was that I did not talk very much about Take Back the Night, the event that the book is named after. And so if you've never been to a Take Back the Night event, it's um, it's an it's an event where uh, people come together walk through the streets of this city without fear and condemning violence, gender-based violence. It looks different in different parts of Canada. It looks different depending on what, what kind of people are organizing it. But it is one of these enduring events that still does happen regardless of how big your city is or how small your rural community is. And the the need for uh, people to gather and to to yell loudly into the night sky that we are not afraid and these are our streets that the the need has never gone away. And so I wrote this preface near the end of March 2020. And I'm, I'm starting this section on what has changed? Where are we now? By talking about the preface of the book, because it, it, it's the part of the book that was the most forward looking. And it starts with me talking about the story of Barbara Schleifer, who was the young woman whose murder, the the day that she was called to the bar in 1980, inspired activists who had been doing similar events like Take Back the Night already to formally call their events Take Back the Night. This preface tries to look back to 1980 and to the organizing that led to Take Back the Night and then look forward, uh, guessing where the world might be uh, in the years to come, recognizing that the book wouldn't have even been released uh, for another uh, several months, right? It was released in October 2020, and I wrote this in March 2020. Um, and so to start the discussion on where we uh, ha- where we have come since this was written, I'm going to read a little bit from the preface. And, uh, and it'll help you appreciate where my mind was as I was staring down, as we, as, as society, as the world was staring down the possibility of a global pandemic. I understand that feminism is a contested and weighty word with a history that is both rich and important and exclusive and oppressive. To take back the fight means to wrestle feminism away from a mainstream understanding that is rooted in whiteness and capitalism and to restore to the word the power to force government action, to force corporations to change course, and to help journalists understand that feminism isn't aesthetic. It's a confrontation. And in that confrontation, many people will be made uncomfortable. This is important as it's through struggle that the feminist movement can build its power. It's an incredible moment to be writing these words. The world is on the edge of massive change thanks to the coronavirus pandemic. 
in see the coronavirus pandemic. We didn't even know what it was going to be called then at that point. In Spain, private hospitals are being nationalized. In China, temporary hospitals were built and dismantled in a matter of weeks. As with all things, there is a gendered impact to the kind of work that is needed to contain the virus and care for the ill, to care for children who've had classes cancelled, and to care for communities who are grappling with horrifying death counts. When the states of emergency are finally lifted, feminists will have important work to do in resisting a hard right-wing reaction to a crisis that required a lot of public money to stabilize the economy. In this extraordinary moment, I hope that feminists can reflect on how anti-racist, anti-colonial, and anti-capitalist feminism is the only thing that will save us from the worst neoliberal reforms. While the personal is political, so too is the collective. As the digital era pulls us into social isolation, there's no better time than now to find a new way to bring feminist organizers together to change the world. <laughs> wow. Uh, the idea that we would be out of states of emergency by now. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, we're not we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And we're still in this pandemic, of course. Uh, there's still daily uh, counts of illnesses all across Canada. The Northwest Territories has has an incredibly dangerous situation on its hands right now. And of course, uh, the virus is starting to slow globally, but it's only starting to slow. And there's no reason to not believe that there will be more waves in the future. Of course, all we can do is hope that the waves uh, are not as bad, that they're just, you know, bumps as we go forward. But the, the, the pandemic has changed everything. And it was not lost on me that I was writing a book that was trying to encourage people to understand the need for us to get together, the need for us to gather, the need for us to organize in real life spaces while respecting the need also to do things online. Putting a book like that out in a, in a moment where everything was online um, it was it was pretty weird, uh, to say the least. And it was also um, it was too bad that there wasn't the opportunity to have kind of, you know, those real life discussions that I that I had called for in the book, because, of course, you know, our social media uh, presences are extremely fraught. Uh, we're surveyed online by by security forces. We really don't know who we're talking to. As much as they seem authentic, it's totally possible that these people, that some of our even closest friends might be security forces as well. And all of our interactions are, are, are manipulated to make profit for other people. And so, you know, recognizing that those are all pitfalls, how do we build a feminist movement that uh, can avoid or sidestep some of those pitfalls while also using the technology necessary to bring people together who can't come together otherwise? And so this is the introduction. This is the overview of, uh, of the book. And I will be talking a lot more, probably maybe too much, <laughs> about, um, about why I think that these are the, the, the things that we need to do, that we need to find those ways to, to come together in real life and to organize, but then to also really be quite critical of mainstream uses of feminism. The dominant discourse that has emerged during this pandemic is that this has been a pandemic that has created something called a she session, which is a fake word that I absolutely hate. But it is rooted in the facts that women were hit hardest by pandemic job losses, were hit hardest by 
um, a whole bunch of uh, elements of the pandemic that they did not need to be hit hardest by. But what is often erased by journalists or liberal feminists, white feminists, that impact was not at all shared equally. Every time there was a major intervention inter- introduced into uh, into society to try and mitigate the spread of COVID, there was always a disproportionate impact, a negative impact on poor people and racialized people. And this impact was so stunning that if you look at who the communities were that benefited the most from the the rhetoric around planking the curve, which was, was the, the dominant rhetoric in April 2020, you know, Jennifer Yang from the Toronto Stars, as, as journalist there, she posted some graphs that showed that instantly planking the curve stopped COVID from circulating among highest, the, the median and highest income Torontonians and the two lowest uh, quartiles uh, kept on rising. And, and, and this was, you know, she's referring to, to, to data from the city of Toronto, but this was, this was replicated all across Canada, it was replicated all across North America. And so for the focus of uh, job losses and the recession to be on a, on a she session, aside from how actually difficult it is to say she session all the time, <laughs> my God, um, it, it actually erased the, the disproportionate impact that, uh, that racialized women faced, that poor women faced, of course, poor racialized women, um, and and even more critically, disabled women. Disabled women's voices were almost entirely scrubbed from the mainstream narrative. Politicians did very, very little, if nothing at all. And again, you know, liberal feminism failed to stand up for these individuals. Liberal feminism failed to call out the CERB for systematically excluding anybody that didn't make more than $5,000 last year or, you know, in 2019, whenever the benchmark was for, for people trying to get the CERB. And who's that going to marginalize further that will marginalize further Indigenous women, disabled women, racialized women? And where, where were feminists talking about that? I mean, of course, there were some, but the dominant narrative was, no, what, what women need is, is childcare. Right. Something that would be impossible to implement in a week's notice, let alone a month's notice, let alone a year's notice. And something that actually a majority of women don't directly need. Of course, society needs it generally. That's it's it's a, it's an absolutely critical demand that we make. But it is not the quintessential women's issue. And to see these pitfalls, to see white feminism and liberal feminism continuously control the narrative on what feminism is, it's pretty depressing. It's pretty frustrating. But there's a lot of reasons for why that's that's happening. And I'm going to talk about those reasons in the rest of this podcast. And that's it. That's the introduction. I hope that you find it interesting. And I hope that you stick around for the rest of the episodes. This podcast is written, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Nora Loretto. It's funded by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. You can find all of Harbinger's podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. Music is also by me, except for this, which is Garam Chai by General Khan. Wear my heart on my sleeve, the city won't let me breathe. I heave through humidity, lack of community. Rooted in my truth, I'm a useless place.
has me lost in a haze Awaking every day to the same day Need change in a big way Whites need to lose their power So they dismay Tell me to behave I'm jaded, weren't supposed to make it So we're forced to take it Till they break us Never fed us Systemic abuse, huh? It hasn't let up So my justice is with the highest above I've had about enough There's too much to discuss Lost trust, but I'm not giving up Hear this beat, put you in the high seat And make you nervous Me? I'm earnest I bring the heat to a tea Guaranteed Garam chai in my thermos <laughs> 